uh, this year as last year and last few years we'll continue our study of what's known in Hebrew as Dat Umada which is literally religion and science these past four or five years we've studied a topic that is A, perhaps the most difficult and at the same time the most cutting edge and one can fairly argue this is the most important subject that one can study as well how to defend all these statements as we go along you'll see why I feel comfortable saying these these statements it's not number one your usual synagogue class and I would dare say that there's no synagogue in our community that studies this material and yet on the other hand it reflects a certain philosophy of Judaism and thereby I would say that it's most necessary it's a topic that goes back actually 2,000 years ago where the rabbis of the Talmud themselves would debate, would argue, would question, would challenge issues which raised questions for them. And certainly a thousand years ago, the Talmud Harambam, Maimonides wrote an entire book, Moreno Bochim, God for the Perplexed, because this issue was the subject of debate of how to reconcile, how to correspond issues of Torah, which we understand, along with issues of science, which raises questions, challenges to the Torah's principles. We can find rabbis of the Talmud 2,000 years ago debating these questions of science. We, in past years, had looked at Gemara Masechah Pesachim, Dav Sadiq Dawid, which spoke about the rabbis debating the Greek, the philosophers, as well as Masechah Sanhedrin. What kind of questions they debate? Issues of astronomy, issues of biology, raising issues of consequence where these two disciplines actually cross. For example, they raise the question, at what point of the natural conception of a child does the soul enter into the child? At conception, at birth, or beyond? What is that relevant for? What issue? Abortion, exactly. It's a very relevant question biologically and theologically. As well, the Gemara and Masechet raised the question, the astronomical question, as to what exactly is the curvature of the heavens and how does the sun function in terms of the curvature of the heavens or how does the sun actually go back and forth. The rabbis had their opinions, the Greek philosophers had their opinions, and the rabbis challenged and accepted truth the way they perceived it. And, of course, constant, a constant theme throughout all Harambam's writings. Talk about Maimonides, you're talking about one of the greatest minds of all of Jewish history. Maimonides, as a constant issue in his life, was the attempt in all of his works, not simply in Morena Bukhim, but in all of his works, there was the attempt to correspond science and religion. Now, the Rambam was not the only medieval thinker or Rishon who tried to find some correspondence, tried to see both of these disciplines, intellectual disciplines, Quran and philosophy slash science, as reflecting the same truth. Ramban, Nachmanides, as a physician, as a philosopher, knew that he had this obligation to correspond these two disciplines. Though, he was, it seems to me, a bit more reserved in his opinions, which of course is important to us because we want to try to discover for ourselves how far we can go. What are the range of options? 
And as we go along, we will see that we have a number of options that we could actually take. But it wasn't, I mean, but it wasn't only the Ramban, Rabag, the Sanadis of the 15th century, the 14th century, viewed as one of the greatest of the mathematicians, greatest of astronomers of the medieval period, literally viewed as a genius. Now, Bag is present on our Mikroge the Lord commentary. We all know him, fine. But we don't know how invested he was in mathematics and astronomy. He, too, had to work out some kind of correspondence between what Torah is teaching and what science of those days taught. Not only these three, multiple of thinkers, multiples of thinkers can be found trying to work their way through, trying to reconcile and harmonize these disciplines. Sa'ajigaon was the first of the 10th century, had his feet firmly planted in both these two disciplines, and he had, he felt the obligation as his book, Imanopadeot, Doctrines and Opinions, shows, trying to reconcile the prevailing issues, the current issues. Every generation has its own philosophical challenges to Torah. We heard a lecture on Thursday night of genetics. Genetics, cloning, gene manipulation, who is a Jew. All of these issues are tied into the issues of genetics. What are the implications of these statements? We feel it's important that we, I mean, that we try to work out the issues that science presents us with, the issues that it challenges us with, along the principles, with the principles of Torah. Two spheres, religion and science, throughout the last 2,000 years, there have been debates and challenges trying to either reject one or the other. Scientists reject religion. Religionists, theists reject science. And there's always been those people of a certain kind of a mind who tries to somehow make sure that these two correspond. Harambam, of course, took it one step further than anybody else. He was concerned to not only reconcile these two, but he had to show throughout his Purusha Mishnayot, his book of commentary on the Mishnah, as well as Olamun Anuchim, and even the Mishnah Torah, Mishnah Torah is the book of Halachas, Jewish law. But he didn't want the average Jew who opens up Shukhan Aruch, his Shukhan Aruch, Mishnah Torah, to walk away feeling that science is not relevant to Judaism. Harambam goes a step further and says that laced throughout all of Mishnah Torah, you're going to find issues where he makes sure that science corresponds to religion. You should not walk away thinking that science can challenge Judaism and that challenge remain unanswered. In all of these works, in all of these issues, Harambam is at the forefront of making sure that there is that correspondence. He makes it even more interesting in a work that we studied about maybe two or three years ago, Hechos Le Torah. These are the chapters that deal with foundation principles of Torah study. These are the basics. And whatever the Ramam calls a basic, we should take note of. Not quoting from some obscure source way into the book. This is the second chapter of this work. So you cannot avoid this issue. And over here the Rambam tells us that there are two critical mitzvot around which the entire Torah revolves. What are those two mitzvot? Good, excellent. Avat Hashem 
and Yirat Hashem. You have to love God and you have to stand in awe of God. God cannot be... You're saying not fear. Stand in awe of, as we'll see in a few minutes. That's correct. Yirat means pahad would be tremble. Pahad is a almost instinctive fear of something. That's pahad. Yirat is more sublime, more sophisticated. It's standing in awe of almost dumbstruck at seeing the glories of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Good. So here you have two mitzvot. God cannot be a passive datum for you. Passive meaning, he's there, he's not there, no concern of mine. Rambam gives you the statement very clear. You have an obligation of loving, standing in awe of God. And of course, Good. Now your next question is, how does one stand in awe of God? How does one love God? You should be aware of this Rambam because it's so basic not only to Rambam but to all of Jewish thinking. Nobody would dispute the fact that you have to love God or stand in awe, in awe of God. How do you do it? Rambam tells you Take note. The moment that a person contemplates God's creation all of the creations that God created that are awesome that are great and you will see within them, Chokhmatur, God's great wisdom, that has no end to it, and no kids to it, no final point to it. Notice all the terms that Ramam uses over here. Ramam is a master of the word. Not that you use extra words. If you were to study the natural order, natural order is translated as biology, chemistry, physics, science of the mind, called psychology. Science of the mind. Psychology, study any of these disciplines and you see God's great wisdom that is incomprehensible and unending, immediately, spontaneously, you will love, you will praise, you will glorify, you will desire, you have a great desire to know God. And of course, the term Da'at is not a neutral term. Da'at is a term that's used for the most deep and fullest experience that one can have with another person. We use the word sex, which, have a negative, which has a kind of um, um, inappropriate connotation to it. So I use the word, he experienced. Da'at means to know, knowledge bordering on emotional experience. Intimacy, right. Good. So you could be intimate with a person and have a child. You could be intimate with God and have such a great desire, knowledge which brings you to that point of desiring to know God and love God even more. Pasuk, the great poet David says, My soul thirsts for God. God becomes a pulsating, vibrant, living being in your life when you thirst for God. So God, Hashem, is not simply a datum of nature. It's a part of nature that you have this great emotional need to love. It's a very high level to achieve. But it's a very, the very beginning of the book of the Rambam. Second chapter. So it's basic. Clear. And then he says, when you think, now you are involved in this Shira Shirim-like relationship with Bore Olam loving God, and you think about these issues, then you're all of a sudden hit with what issue? God's awesomeness. 
God's extraordinary nature. Miyad, note the word miyad repeated. Miyad, you take a step back. I'm dealing with the creator of a hundred million galaxies, as we appreciate, because we studied these issues before. I'm dealing with the creator of a billion, billion stars, which we'll come back to later on. And then you stand in awe. That's why the word awe is, I think, more correct over here. And is imminent. And imminent. That's what you could love. That's what you could love, because God is imminent. Absolutely, correct. And then you go through all of these feelings and you'll know, Shuhu Biriyakitana, who am I, with reference to the entire universe. Biriyakitana, Shefela, Afela, Omeda Badat Kala, what do I really know ultimately about God? Who are we kidding? I would say that one of the um, great tragedies of the modern era is that people misperceive science and thereby they believe that science brings a person away from God. To the contrary. A little science brings a person away from God. But the more science you give that person, the more that he'll come to appreciate the glories of God's world. Even Stephen Hawking, our classic 20th century atheist, will say to you that I may not believe in God, but what happened to the Big Bang? Only God knows. As your tape indicates. Bottom line is, you come back to that Big Bang, what ha- we could scientifically accurately portray what happens to the millionth of a second of a Big Bang. But prior to that millionth of a second, it's only God knows. The Einsteins of the world, all those people that really have a sophisticated understanding of theology, not only of science, but of theology, are almost pushed into this area of saying that one word called God. So Haramban is very clear, and this is something that people should be aware of must be emphasized because specifically in this community this is a subject that is taboo people are afraid of it people don't want to touch it and you're not allowed to teach it even and that's just simply I would say illiteracy, ignorance and that's sad because this could be a great tool of coming to know God more profoundly now let's go to the heart of the matter beyond the Rambam's formulation that the study of physics and biology and chemistry and all this brings a person closer to Borei Olam Rambam is very clear. Nobody here would challenge it. Correct? Black on white. The real issue, however, is something that takes in a different direction, which touches upon the fear that many in this community have of studying these two disciplines. We take it as a given. Torah is truthful. Torah is emet. Torah is a repository of truth. question has to be raised. How does Torah compare to the, quote, new truths that are discovered in every single age. Here comes what you might call dissonance. I have this accepted body of truth. Ramam tells you in the first chapter of Morena Bukhim. And all of a sudden, that accepted body of truth is challenged and in many cases undermined by these new discoveries. The question is, what do we do with them? How do we deal with them? Does Torah demand that we ignore these new discoveries? That's a very serious question that many people here would say yes to. We should not be studying these issues. Ignore it. Shouldn't be, it shouldn't bother you. Don't get involved in it. Not an issue for your concern. In which case, you're going to allow these new discoveries about the nature of the universe, that truth, to pass us by while we maintain a hardcore loyalty to a literal reading of Torah texts. 
Is that what the Torah wants of us? It's a very serious question. Fundamental. In past classes going back four or five years, we had noted there were four options that you have. What could you do? A, you could ignore it. Ignore all of the new developing sciences, informations, discoveries, whatever it may be, as much as what the so-called right-wing world will do. Not concerned, not involved. Today's times, coming close to discovering the particle that gives weight to matter, whatever that means. Right? It's page A8 of the Times today. How do I know? Because it has an article on Israel today on page A8. So you read about Israel, A8. No one talks about this laboratory in... Yeah, the or something. The, yeah, the, his theory yeah. of the... Hard to explain it. Hard to even, yeah. So it has been on the same page as Israel, so I have particles. Yeah. What about particle theory? Particle physics. Right, so you're sorry. Yeah. It's an amazing discovery. They're going to build a... Uh, what do we call it? Cyclotron of miles long underground tunnels. They're going to split an atom. They're going to discover now the most fundamental particle of matter of what God created the world with, we would say. They need more funding. Anybody have $50 million? Okay. No? Well, then you won't discover it. Or, the second option would be challenge these new discoveries and say that our notions of biology and physics as are learned out from Torah, are true, and modern science is false. Others, some people would say, that's the right approach. Not ignore, which is the first option, but challenge and aggressively portray the agenda of, let's say, for example, take one of the most challenging of sciences, which we haven't spent too much time with, but we'll come back to, of evolution. We could ignore it and live happily ever after, we could, on the other hand, challenge and say evolution is foolish, stupid, and ignorant. Although 99.9% of all biologists say that some form of evolution has taken place. Not necessarily Darwinian evolution. That everybody agrees is passe. But 99% of biologists will say that some form of evolution has taken place. I roomed, when I was in graduate school, with a, as you well know, of course, people have been here, with an MIT PhD in biology, biochemistry, who has his PhD from a Nobel Prize winner, winner, a person named Luria, related to the great Abishak Luria. Yeah, we found that, related to it. Now, when you live with a biologist for a year or more, it was a couple of years, you begin to appreciate what biology really means. And when you would ask him, Michael, did evolution really happen? He just would break out in laughter. Because the height of illiteracy and ignorance is equivalent to saying the earth is flat. Thousands of years ago, people believed the earth is flat. Anybody believe the earth is flat? You guys sure? Have anybody ever? No, I'm not so sure of it. There's a few guys here that you can't really trust. But it's the same, from his point of view, it's the same issue. There's so much evidence in favor of it. But yes, there are questions, there are challenges, there are theories about what form of evolution. That we agree. But he would say, as one who knows the field of biology and evolution, that it's saying the same, to deny evolution is a saying the same as denying the roundness of the earth. And yet there are people who will challenge science and say that evolution is wrong, it's false, it's, but those who say it are just illiterate and ignorant, rabbis included, sadly enough. The third option, and by the way, all of these options are represented in our tradition. I am not making this up. This is all, and I will show you texts that will correspond to all that I'm saying. 
The third option would be to try to see of this new idea developed in science, evolution, which is an old idea by now, whatever it may be, how it corresponds to Torah teachings. You approach it honestly because you have, you're intellectually honest. You understand it well, profoundly. And you try to see how it's going to fit. Let me give you an example of one which affects us extraordinarily much of science. In the field of biology, scientists debate what point does death occur. Very important issue for many reasons. When is there death? What is death? Now, Torah's view of death, based on, when I say Torah, I mean in the broader sense. I mean, including Gemarot and everything else, right? Torah. Torah's view of death is exactly where? When does death happen? Torah's point of view. Well, the soul leaves the body. Okay, that's theological. Oh, but I want a biological, you're right, but biological, physical answer, correct. Respiratory death. Mm-hmm. Where do you know that from? Gemarot Shabbat. Good. Gimran Shabbat raises a very concrete question that you're walking along and a building falls, somebody, falls down on somebody and the person is there. Could I be Mahalel Shabbat to save this person's life? Yes. Right? I could be Mahalel Shabbat, get rid of those stones to where he can save the person's life. But, look, it seems that he died. The whole building, the Empire State Building fell on this person. I don't think he's alive. Check it out. Till this proof that, di- that he died. You move the steps, so now you uncovered his feet. You move the steps, you covered his knees. You move the steps, you covered his waist. You move the, you keep on moving. You come to his heart, his, his lungs. There's no more respiration. Therefore, Halakha says, he passed away, went to his world, stopping Mahalil Shabbat. Right? That's the traditional Torah view of death, respiratory death. Lungs stop. No longer breath. For modern science now comes along with a new issue. They would say that really a person dies when blood stops flowing to the brain and it's called brain death. Now don't be confused. There are two types of brain death. There's when the higher brain cells cease to function and the lower brain cells cease to function. The higher brain cells cease to function, Karen Ann Quimlin in the 1980s, she was brain dead, but really she was alive. From our point of view, she was alive. Her higher brain functions ceased. True, she drank, she this, she that, drugs. She no longer higher brain functions. However, her cerebrum had died, but the lower part of the brain, which is connected to the medulla of the spine, down here, that was still functioning, and she was still breathing. So when she was off the machine, she was still breathing. From a Jewish point of view, she was still alive. This was an issue that was battled in courts. Because of this particular issue, the Harvard had a set of criteria that was published in 1982, and subsequently revised in 1985-86 as to how to define death. Why is that so important to us halakhically for organ donations? Right? right? In other words, that with all organs which we're allowed to give, you can give organs without a problem, person dies, either which way, the organs can be harvested and given over, save lives. Great. What's the one organ where this does not work? The heart. If you hold like Rabbi J. David Bleich, who holds by the traditional Talmudic opinion that respiratory death is what actually defines death. You cannot do a heart transplant because you have to wait till the heart stops beating and then what happens? You can use it because the heart begins to deteriorate as soon as it stops beating. Yet, Ramoshe Feinstein, Chief Rabbin of Israel, and a multiples of other poor scheme will say that 
No, it's not when the heart stops beating, the way Talmudic science taught, but rather there's a form of death called brain death, and we could do it by shooting a dye into the person's veins, and it will, if the person has died, brain death, the dye will not go to the brain. That means whatever the person is doing, the person could be breathing, the person could be heart beating, and the heart will continue to beat beyond brain death. So if you follow the Puskin of Moshe Feinstein, Rabbi Tendler told me directly, who was the son of Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, that his father, Moshe Feinstein, sat for hours, day and a half, with the world's greatest neurologist, discussing the finer points of what brain death means and what it happens. And Moshe Feinstein, based on all this information, came to the conclusion that brain death is in fact death, which means, the implication is what? That I could, if a person goes to the next world, dies, then though the heart is still beating, and we can maintain our beating on a respirator for a couple of hours, even after brain death. I think he said that it's as if... Who's he? Uh, <coughs> that it's as if the person was decapitated. Correct. That's, yes, that's exactly what comes out. Yeah. Yes, correct. That's part of the Shabbat. Yes, and the heart can still beat. We can re- now keep it alive. Mm-hmm. Then I can save lives, right and left. Fantastic story. So here we have this conflict Potential conflict, but resolved between the finds of modern science and what was traditionally held to be a Talmudic opinion. Biology over here is now saving lives, and Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, Rabbi Tendler, who's a PhD in biology, analyzed, expanded Torah, and saw, does Torah accept this new definition in quotes of death? Rabbi Moshe Feinstein said yes. Others say no. That's who you hold by, right? That's the basic bottom line issue in this particular case. So, our third option, when we are challenged by new discoveries in science, is to see, after analyzing well, clearly, deeply, analytically, the new scientific truths, put them in quotes for a second, and see if they can correspond to Torah teachings about these issues. Of course, the fourth option would be to accept as carte blanche all that science says, and revamp all the Torah says. That obviously is not an option for us. We're not going to absolutize and deify science. We're going to yet take it with a grain of salt, analyze, study, and see. Now this interesting option is traditionally expressed as the modern orthodox opinion university, which is that citadel of both deep Torah learning, Rabbi Salavechik, of course, and many others, as well as great scientists, world-renowned scientists, Rabbi Tendler, among others, who will seek out science, try to understand it, search for truth, and will make the statement that all of truth, scientific or otherwise, has a place within the palace of Torah teachings. It does correspond. Their model for this, of course, is the Rambam. Maimonides said this a thousand years ago, that what science teaches, if it's proven to be true, that it has a place within the realm of Torah. Torah cannot be at variance with anything true that science teaches. If it's true, scientifically true, we accept it. If it's false, then I have to worry about it. If science gives me a false opinion, not my problem. It's false. Don't discard it. And that's the end of the story. If we're not sure, if it's only a theory, then of course we could wait and we could say that we're going to see how this theory develops. 
and try to understand it. Now, Rav Kook, who was, interestingly enough, one of the perhaps most extraordinary minds of the 20th century, Jewish minds, I would put Rabbi Soloveitchik and Rav Kook in that same ballpark of extraordinary religious personalities. Rav Kook, of course, has we have some of his books um, over there. Yeah, he has about very prolific writer. All this is Rav Kook's works, right? All of this. And there are many more. Rav Kook wrote extraordinary amount. And he dealt with all of these issues. And he specifically has this wonderful teshuvah that we studied six, seven years ago on the issue of evolution. He says, of course evolution is true. But he teaches evolution. Evolution is part of Torah teaching. And that's why I have to laugh at those people that call evolution heresy. Because many are saying that this great Jewish personality is a heretic. Which is absurd. It's foolish to say that. Maybe wrong. It may be wrong that evolution is might, maybe false. Maybe it's wrong. It's only theory at this point. Maybe Rav Kook was wrong about it. But you can't call Rav Kook a heretic. If he's a heretic, then we're all heretics. He's a man that was close to, to Hashem. And yet, through his Kabbalistic teachings, he came to this conclusion that all of the world is in the process of evolution. He took evolution that it's more than simply just biological. It's spiritual evolution. We're all changing towards becoming more and more aware of Akadosh Baruch Hu and towards Mashiach. So everything is evolution in a state of development and in a state of flux. So, Rav Kook spoke about this option. He says, look, before you reject anything, expand the palatial boundaries of Torah, see if it fits, analyze it honestly, and then let's see what happens. So, ironically over here, that philosophy of modern orthodoxy fits very well with Rav Kook's understanding about the advances in modern science. Good. So we have our options. <clears throat> all of these options, all four of them, are actually, as mentioned, a reflection of all of the greatest of rabbis going back a thousand years. Now, what do we call the rabbis of a thousand years ago? You should be aware of that, Eli. Ishonim. Right? You should be aware of this. This is basic Jewish literacy. Important for us to know. You have the Bible. Good. 20 books of the Bible. Good. Was concluded, let's say, about 2,300 years ago. Let's start at the period of the Mishnah Gemara, which lasts for about 500 years. No, 800 years. Mishnah is about 400 years, from 200 before the Common Era to 200 after the Common Era. It's called Mishnah. Then from 200 to the Common Era to about 600 after the Common Era, you have called Gemara. That's Talmudic period, right? After that, from the 7th century to the 10th century, I had the period of the Geonim. Okay, Geonim. Great. Geonim Sa'aj Gaon was a great Gaon. Fantastic, extraordinary man. We mentioned him already. He was a man that was so much involved with the science of his day. Lived in Iraq, Babylonia, which was the intellectual capital of the world at that point, with everything going through it. Philosophy and science and all kinds of issues. That's why he wrote his book, Emirat Deot. Good. Then we have Eli's period called Rishonim. Rishonim is Rashi, Ramban, the Rambam, Ibn Ezra, Rashbam. The greatest of the Jewish minds are part and parcel of this period which extends from the 11th century to the 16th century. All this is Rishonim. Our greatest classic works are all of the Rishonim period of time. But after the 16th century, from the conclusion of the Rishonim of Cairo till today we call them Aharonim later day rabbis. Now what the Rishonim say is unchallengeable. We 
live and drink from their teachings. They disagree. They challenge each other. But all of these writings of the Rambam, Ramban, we are sustained and nourished by what all of they say. Now, halakhically, meaning, if the Rambam says, let's say, that X is the halakha, right? Assuming he was not challenged by any other Rishon, then no Aharon is going to challenge what any Rishon says. If what he said is subject to challenge, meaning, let's say he says that um, you can carry on Shabbat, or not carry on Shabbat, whatever, or you can work carrying on a roof, whatever the case may be. He established, having drunken in all of the previous thousand years of intellectual activity, Mishnah, Gimad, Bible, Mishnah, Gimad, all that, here I am, he decides a rule. Right? Decides a rule. Now, assuming that that rule remains as black and white as unchallengeable, then we don't really challenge it. Here's an interesting example. Is it obvious to everybody over here that if somebody's life's in danger, I can mehalel Shabbat? Mm-hmm. Right? It's obvious. Why is it so obvious to you? Because it's logical because the Ramam said so. That's my question. The answer is, you should not function by what's obvious to you, but rather what the Ramam says. Because what's obvious to you may not necessarily be obvious to somebody else. And there might be other issues where your logic takes you in one direction, where Allah logic takes you in another direction. Why would that be the case? Because you might be dealing with an isolated instance, and Allah has to worry about what's going to be learned out or understood for a broader mass of people. Allah has concern is not only of the immediate moment, it's what, what may be the implications and other concepts that emerge from this particular halakha. Whatever. What will evolve. What will evolve yeah. from it. Correct. Good. So, you cannot decide issues of Jewish law based on your logic, but rather, if the Ramam said it, then we follow it. If, admittedly, if the Ramam is challenged in one particular issue or other, then we will decide the halakha. Shukharuch, other opinions, we weigh it, we value it, etc. But, when an absolute principle is brought down in the Rambam, we're going to accept it as absolute, and we're not going to challenge it. We're on the same page? Yeah? You want to challenge the Rambam? I mean, everything that he says is unchallengeable. He has a lot of things to say but, but challenged by... I'm sorry? I mean, things of how to act, psychology, what to eat. That would be medicinal knowledge, a different issue. Now you're becoming more particular. Yeah, I'm talking about halakhically, as opposed to medicinally. Also, how about things that he said that was part of his time about women that can't be uh, totally disregarded today? We'd have to analyze it again in the context of what he's saying, to whom he's saying it, did he mean it absolutely or relatively? That's a challenge. That's fine. I'm saying you can analyze it. But if he makes an absolute principle that's unchallenged by anybody. Let's say, for example, if you want another one, he has an interesting halakha over here about martyrdom. Under what conditions are you obligated to commit martyrdom? Meaning giving your life for your religion. Right? So the Ram says it over here. He gives the whole entire chapter 5 in his beginning book. So that has become the basis for what we do. Nobody challenges it. Or, for example redeeming captives. Let's say somebody is captured by the uh, Hamas. And let's say they want $10 billion. Right? Are we obligated to raise $10 billion to ransom that person? What would you say? Hmm. Why not? I could say that. It's a human life. 
Right. So the Rambam says no because something calls Tikkun Olam. Tikkun Olam means if you do this, then you're going to encourage further acts of terrorism and that will destabilize all society. So based on that opinion of the Rambam, we act, we function. So there are multiples of opinions of statements the Rambam makes that if they're unchanged, if they're challenged in the Shunim's period of time, or if they're medicinal issues, or depending on psychological issues, then that might be subject to challenge. We have to analyze it, for sure. But there's certain statements that are unchallenged by the Rambam, because the Rambam ended up saying it. We accept it as basic bottom line. Okay, good. <coughs> so now, we can find in this period of Rishonim, which is an, relative to what came afterwards, is the golden age of Jewish thinking, that great rabbis, as I've tried to emphasize before, have engaged science as a discipline and have come to their conclusions. So Ajit Owen has an interesting statement in his introduction to Erodeot. Kol mevakesh da'at Yosef ledrosh ha'emet da'gil ha'emet Whoever seeks out wisdom and knowledge must penetrate to the depths of truth to get to truth. You have to find truth. Truth may be part of parcel of the scientific world. If it is, then you have to pursue it. You must know truth. Saaja, Rambam, Ramban, Ibn Ezra, Kaspi, Ravad, Ravanel, many others, all of these sought truth within Torah, of course, but also as well within the scientific realm. And they responded to it in one way or another. They tried to correspond the truths of the age with the truth of science. They didn't ignore it. They didn't even say something like, as people will tell you, but the truth of science are changing. So therefore, let me ignore it because it changes. But somebody who knows science well would say that, yes, it's true that there are different theories and different ideas and different expressions of those theories and truths and everything else like that. Yes, that's all true. However, there's also certain things that are proven. That are proven as absolute fact. And as absolute fact, then we have to accept it as such. Let's say the nature of the sun. We know an awful lot about the nature of, a, of the sun. That's viewed as fact. Period. It's that simple. It's not speculative. It's what we know is truths. We're not required to deny those truths. If the truths by standard of normative logic has been proven, we don't say, no, maybe it's going to be wrong and be overturned. We don't say that. The Rambam would say that. The Rambam says, no, no, accept it. The Rambam accepted the truths of his own age and Torah had to correspond to it. And that was his genius in understanding Torah so that it corresponds to the truths of his age. <coughs> and yet, you have other great rabbis who will ignore these discoveries of the sciences of the medieval period of a thousand years ago, the Rishonim, were not aware of it. Give me some suggestions. Who do you think was not aware of the sciences? Not involved, not challenged by it. That she would be one. She was an extraordinary scholar. He was a man of incredible intellectual proportions. His comedy on Torah is viewed as holy, is viewed as almost unchallengeable, right? And yet he isn't aware of it. No issues, no discoveries, no, no, nothing to do with scientists. Baratosafot, the great Talmudic commentaries, children, grandchildren of Rashi, related, other cases unrelated to Rashi. All of these as well were not challenged by it. This was not part of their world. 
Now you may challenge me and say, well, how can I be part of their world? If you're a person that's functioning, it becomes part of your world. What's the answer to that? The answer is that you know many rabbis today who are brilliant, but are not challenged by these issues, not concerned with these issues. It doesn't bother them. Yeah, I think there's a big difference between Sigma and Ashi and today. In other words, you're beginning to bring four alternatives to approaching science, which might have been the case the last 2000 years that you have four approaches. And maybe in this community there's a segment, and in the Jewish world there's a segment <coughs> that chooses to either close their eyes or reject science. And Ashi had that option, but today... And in Rashi's day, and even 50 years ago, and 100 years ago, people were able to do that. But in the 21st century, nobody, almost, in the entire world, <laughs> will take that approach. Not at all true. How could you say that? Because today... Wait a minute. Wait, fact, this is fact. Fact. In the Rashi's uh, time... I'll give you a fact. One, one second, let me just... Uh, get 30 more seconds. In the Rashi's time, and even, like I said, in this country, you had people... And today tries to reject teaching... Um, Evolution in the schools in Kansas City. So I'm not saying it right. doesn't go on, but the how about in Satma? How about in Lubavitch? <laughs> but that's in such a tiny percentage of the world. Okay. Fifteen hundred years ago, okay. People and and thousand and five hundred years ago, people did not know what we know today. All right, and that's true. Once you close your eyes, right? Then you have no option to do that. That she had the option. He didn't know what was going on around the world the way we do today. Agreed. And that's Agreed. been the case for the last. 50, 30 years, and it's getting more so. Right. So today, you can't say, well, we have four options. But many are. But, but many, that's true. Joke. The world didn't look to Rashi as a joke. Agreed. Agreed. Because in his world, everybody thought that way. Or a lot of people did. Yeah, absolutely. The circle thought that way. Agreed. So he wasn't a backwards guy. Right. Today, the rabbi that thinks a certain thing is looked at by 99% of the world as a backwards guy. Sometimes. Right. Yet, it, but I would probably say to you that of the Orthodox, you're right. But of the Orthodox world, of, okay. But of the Orthodox Jewish, which is our world, it's our global community, is defined by the Orthodoxy of the let's say 400,000 Jews in America, Orthodox Jews in America, right? Let's say there's worldwide 700,000 Jews. I will say to you that 90% of them, I'm not exaggerating, would probably follow that option of either ignor- ignoring or of rejecting. Challenging, rejecting. They, they can't speak intelligently. They, they can't have a dialogue but that's, with the rest of the world. That's correct. With that's correct. She that's correct. Have. They don't want to. I'm sorry? They don't want to. And they don't want to. Right, they, they don't, don't want, want to. to, to but you're right. That she thought this way, the people today have that option. I think that she thought that way. Well, they have the option, but we could, we could reject it. A book that was available. Correct. Of course. Sure. Up on the internet or buy the store. They know what was going on in their village. There was no communication. Correct. So... Right. We shouldn't defend. I'm not defending. You're saying that I should go a step further and condemn. Not condemn. Say that. I don't want condemning it. The four options aren't viable. But they are nevertheless options. People are in fact exercising those options. Because you think I'm insulting Rashi. Yeah. Right. I didn't mean to insult Rashi either. Correct. Rashi or anybody else. Agreed. Okay. I agree. Good point. Out there. Right. No, no, not necessarily. Okay, but no, the Rambam sorted out. out. The Ramban sorted out. So, Aja, they were engaging it. That's an interesting question. That's yeah. only a very interesting question. But I think one thing that you are not fully aware of, and have you read biographies of Rashi? No. I don't think you did. 
Now, if you didn't read Biagashi, you really can't make that statement. I read Biagashi Rashi. And what's at stake over here is not simply what was available, but there are minds who don't have intellectual quests, who are not simply curious about what's out. It's a mind issue. It's a psychological question. Some people, I mean, that you and I grew up with, let's say, and, you know, we, we, we'd be one with them, we'd play basketball, we'd go to them, we'd do everything else. Mm-hmm. But some of us had this intellectual need to know, some of us didn't have this need to know. Mm-hmm. So, whether or not she had a need to know is an open question. And by letters so forth, that Moshe Feinstein didn't have this need to intellectually know the world. That Moshe Feinstein, as an extraordinary gaon of the 20th century, Shilta Chavod, responsible for that, extraordinary mind, Yet, he didn't have a need to know the world of science beyond the world of Torah. He, need, he wants to know science to the extent that I need science to, defi- to determine halacha. That's what I want to know. But not an intellectual need to know. Well, Salavajik, on the other hand, equally of great stature, the 20th century, had a need to know. So he was current with science and mathematics and physics and everything else like that. That was his interest. It's like going to live in a cloister and studying in a cloister and being a librarian or engaging the world and, and being honest with life around you. Right, okay. But even, uh, an interesting point that a librarian can be of two sorts. First, it could be a librarian because he loves books but doesn't read the books. Mm. And it could be a librarian who just has this great thirst for knowledge. I know many librarians who just don't, who don't have an intellectual quest for understanding, wanting to know the essence of life. You know, it reminds me of that, you know, very famous story of, of a person that quests for the meaning of life. And he travels high and low into all places of what life is all about. And, of course, the story ends when he finally goes to one of the high mountains. He's an elderly person. And you know the end of the story? <laughs> he's one of them. Yes, he's one of them. What's the meaning of life? So, and he goes in this formulation of it. And finally, he says, Oprah's long beard and... Just what's the meaning of life? What's the meaning of life? Mm-hmm. So he says, a snow cone. Snow cone? It's a snow cone, a snow cone. So you mean it's not? <laughs> that was it. <laughs> that was it, the whole life. So you just don't care about it. And that, that joke comes from that person who doesn't really care what the meaning of life. They go through life, they don't have time to think about, to... Uh, to the families and the good people. Sorry? Good. <laughs> Maybe you get the tape. There's no code. So, the issue over here would be that... Yes. It's, it's really well trained. Just So, the issue over here would be that I don't know that it's true to say that she would be a seeker of knowledge. You can have a hard time finding anybody that would try to seek knowledge the same way that the Rambam did. There's a spectrum over here. Rambam was an extreme personality, intellectually so vibrantly honest, as well questing of knowledge. This is not a book that has come out that I didn't read about, for example, Avodazad idolatry. He wants to know about everything. There's a difference between seeking knowledge and denying things that everybody accepts. Not following. You don't have to be a great seeker of knowledge to know that there's a theory of evolution and that okay. and that generally has some truth. Okay. Or rather, it's a different mind that says, I oh. reject that all, it's all false. Yeah, there's all, there's all kinds of nuances in this whole entire spectrum. That's rejection, good. Okay, that's a different kind of a mind. You're right. I would say that she would reject... How do you say that? I don't, I don't want to be a chutzpahdik, but you don't know that she. You don't know that she. 
All right, but you don't know him. Call him up, find out. I don't know. No, I'm seriously. Read his biography. There's two famous biographies about Rashi. I have one of them. Read it, and then you conclude from it what you think about it. You have to, you have to be honest about it. What do you think Rashi or Balai Tosafot? Read Orbach's book on Balai Tosafot, which is the great contemporaries of Rashi, Tamir commentaries. What kinds of personalities were they? And try to glean from whatever we know biographically of these people as they interacted with their own intellectual currents of their day. Would they be a rejectionist? Acceptors? So you don't know. So I have the book. You can read it. And then you'll see. I mean, maybe yes, maybe no. I'm, I'm not sure of the answer to that question. Nevertheless, my point is that what you have today is a reflection which you had a thousand years ago. It's legitimate. You had the Rambams and you had the Rabbi Salavechik's thousand and today. You had the Rabbi Shev Feinstein's who was not, was, he was not against it. He was not rejecting of it. He would not reject scientific theory because he needed it for his Sakalacha. He was more of that middle, but I'm not going to question it. I'm not going to seek it out. But if I need it, I'll call my son or right hand. He'll tell me what I have to worry about scientifically in terms of Halacha. Good. And then, on the other hand, you'll have Lubavitcher Rebbe, on the other hand, of course, was also a seeker of knowledge of sorts. Of sorts. He cared about science and he wrote articles but, about it. Excuse me, but if, if a person is commanded to learn Torah, you know, this is part of Torah. All his sp- spare time is science. Absolutely, Torah, or, that cannot be. Or, or, or I'm not saying either or, but I'll make it either or. Or is it more important to open up a Gemara and learn that, or to go learn someone's uh, theory on uh, relativity or something? Where, where, where should one focus? Good. Given, given. Okay. Good. Good point. Good point. Good point. Good point. I have a knee-jerk answer to you, but also I have a well-thought answer. Just thought out. Give me both. My knee-jerk answer is, okay, <laughs> so from both sides of the hand. My knee-jerk answer is, of course, the way that Ramam presents Torah over here, science over here, is that it's part of Torah. Biology, physics, and chemistry is that which is going to bring you close to God. The question would be, what's going to bring you close to God? Not the same path for every single person. Some people need astrophysics to bring them close to God. Einstein needed astrophysics to bring them close to God. Without astrophysics, Einstein would be an atheist. Without astrophysics, he becomes a theist. Of some sort, whatever sort he may be. So it depends upon who you are that's my knee-jerk answer mm-hmm. that science indeed could be a pathway to Hashem and could be viewed legitimately as the ex- part of the expanded boundaries of Torah study so what you're saying is <coughs> all Torah all emet is Torah absolutely mm-hmm. all truth has to be part and parcel of Torah without question yes 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 now but I will think a little bit more than that and that, I don't think it's a jarring opinion. I think it's a very Pashut opinion. That science is an expression of God's world. I have to know God's world. To love God, I have to know God. To know God, to know God's world. To know God's world, to study science. Pashut, two and two makes four. To me. To me. The more I know about God's world, the more I know God, the more I know God, the more I can love God. It's Ram's formulation. Of course, the Ramam gives me another footnote over here, which I don't think we've ever seen inside. But the Rambam and Chosei Torah, again, basic stuff. This is Jewish literacy 1.1. Tells you over here that all of this issue of science and metaphysics is the substance about which one should study and come close to Hashem through the science, through the science and through metaphysics. Good. However, and these are great important subject matter. These are great things. And it's called Pardes. This is the paradise of learning. Around these issues of physics and metaphysics, or the way he terms it, Maaseh Bereshit and Maaseh Merkava, the science, divine science and sciences in general, that's called Pardes. 
And he tells us, and you are My opinion is, when the Ram says it's my opinion, it's his opinion. So I think this is Torah, it's his opinion. She'en or Tayyipadis, the only person who is allowed or is a prophet to stroll in this paradise of learning, Elamish Malek Basar. Only he was filled his stomach with bread and meat. What is bread and meat? What's his analogy? Interesting that to teach us this notion gives us an analogy. Right. He uses metaphors often in the Rambam to get his point across. And what is Lehu Basar? Who leda? You have to know Asur Matar. What's kosher? What's not kosher? What's allowed? What's not allowed? Kaseh Bahim. Kshar You have to begin with an understanding of commandments. So he answers my question. Yes. And that's, that's a legitimate answer. Mm-hmm. It's true. That one is to first know and be firmly grounded in understanding behavioral norms, Jewish norms, mitzvot, and then you can take your stroll. But then it starts out with your first point. To, uh, Hashem, to, to love God, you have to seek out God. And if you study Gemara only, you're yeah, only learning Ben Adam You're not learning how to seek out God. And science brings you closer to God. But I would say also that a more profound formulation of that would be is that since every human being is created to the Elohim, that my knowledge of people brings me close to God as well. If I could ultimately achieve an understanding, an intimacy, a love of people, then I will make that leap and say, I will come to a love of God as well. So I think it's true, profoundly true, that there are many people that love God have no understanding of science at all. But what do they have? They have a love of people. Many Hasidic rabbis will just flow with their love of people. And that to me is an important criteria of what kind of Jew you are, if you can love people. Then I mentioned um, a couple of weeks ago in one other class that Emily's cousin, the Bayana Rebbe, who was the grandson of the original Bayana Rebbe, Emily's grandfather, he's that kind of person. Oh my God, look at that. I mentioned Emily and she walks in. <laughs> that really is divine. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that's really, what you think it's, that can't be a coincidence. Is that amazing? No, that's really... Is that astounding? No, I did say that. It's like, it's, it's bizarre. I think we should end the class right now. On that high note of... Uh, yeah, I'm going further. Yeah, women cooperate with our... Uh, I'm sorry. What's that wrong? It's, we work together. So that love of people is what could bring people... Now, he... I think has that very deep-seated love of all Jews. You're religious, not religious. You're, Rav Kook also. Rav Kook also was known that the secular, the atheist, the Shomer Atzair, the pioneer, the Halutz. He loved them all. Many criticized him. How could you love that atheist? He said, "I'm God created him." I mean, I told you that once before that my favorite T-shirt that I've ever seen in my entire life is that. On his, there's two there's two great t-shirts that I love that I'd love to get copies of but this is 25 years ago one of them says all, they have all of um, Einstein's equations he's school and all that mathematics and it says what? sorry? here's one and then one says Bereshit Baral Kim something like that I didn't see it Bereshit Baral Kim and then it says all the other one says what does it say? I am somebody special because God don't make no junk it's saying you're still in Kim so Rav Kook would say that he loved there's a certain quality of heart that of soul almost that you can love and incorporate all people the way you do your own family you love all your children you love your wife you love your parents you love everybody 
Harder is to love the guy down the block. Harder is to love the guy who's different than you down the block. Harder is to love the guy that's contrary to you down the block. But if one is able to incorporate humanity, because all people are a manifestation of God, of God's presence. This thing, Barashat uh, Barashat says, when a person dies, it's ma'atah shekhinah. What does that mean? A person dies. This, the divine presence is diminished. There's less of godliness in the world when a person passes away. Because that person was a sentimental king, he represented God's presence, he passed away, there's less of God's presence. So, therefore, I would not say exclusively the only road to God is through science. I wouldn't say that. Or philosophy. I think it's easier. But there are people that have a tremendous capacity to love other people. I think all of us have different capacities. Depending upon education, background, personality, all that. Different capacities. We don't think this way either. But those who do think this way try to incorporate larger portions of humanity, so to speak, to love. And that's the way you come to love God. And vice versa. If you truly love God, you love humanity. If you love humanity, you'll be brought to a love of God as well. Because God and humanity is a reflection one of the other. Tzadim is reflection of Hashem, so that reflects the other. Okay, let me just go one step further. One step further. Those people who burned the books of the Rambam in the 12th and 13th centuries were obviously those people also who were threatened by this form of new scientific knowledge. And they're the ones who rejected, who rejected this. Not as perhaps as she might say, or but some might say, we accept it. Or we don't know about it, but if we did know about it, we would accept it, as Eli wants to argue. Perhaps they would. But Rabbi Be'er Abu Lafia, Rabbi Shalom Ahad, and all of these other rabbis, great rabbis, who burned the books of the Ram because he studied philosophy, because he studied science, and brought down all these kinds of statements, were the ones who would reject outwardly and say the earth is still flat. It's that simple. So, again, all of these, all of these opinions reflect age-old opinions. What we are doing here is not really new. You would have this kind of a class. I'm sure the Rambam had this kind of a class. Motei Shabbat on um, November 4th, 19, uh, year 1192. Uh, same class, same people were here. We were there then. We're here today. The Rambam was teaching the same thing about science and really trying to correspond the two. He'd say, you're, you're perplexed. I'm going to give you a guide to your perplexion. He's going to be able to correspond the two. And he does. He's, his brilliance as such is able to correspond the truth of science, the truth of Torah. That was the Rambam. And there will be people that would be throwing stones at his house as well because of what the Rambam was doing. So you have actually both. So it's all the same. It's, it's Hagagah Hoser. Nothing new under the sun. It happens as well. Wait, just one minute. Yeah, one minute. Right. So now, what motivates us besides the image of the Rambam? A number of sources that we had seen in two and three years ago that I think are important just to mention at this point. And that is the famous Gemara Masechet Yoma. God's seal is truth. One has to pursue truth. That Gemara says it all. It says that you have the obligation of opening up those books, science books, if you have the inclination and the ability to find out what is truth. Now, you may choose to accept truth based on earlier generations or somebody else did the work. Fine. But truth is the seal of what HaKadosh Baruch Hu is all about, and therefore you want to seek knowledge and seek truth. Similarly, we had seen another statement when we began studying this, which is, the Ram says in his introduction to Masechet Avot, 
You have an obligation of listening to truth from whatever its source. Now, in that context, we didn't discuss all of the implications of that, but in that context, if you look at Shemunah Perakim of the Rambam, he's talking about ethics. He's talking about metaphysics. He's talking about free will. He's talking about the nature of the human being. All of this. And he says, I went through all of the greatest thinkers in the world, and they have taught what they have taught, and I am going to accept from their teachings what is true. Jew and non-Jew. Whoever it may be. Because you have the obligation of listening to truth from whatever its source comes. So if it's a Stephen Jay Gould, or if it's Hawkins, or it's Weinberg, Stephen Weinberg, any of these people, if they are teaching truth, that's an important issue. If they're teaching truth, you have an obligation of accepting that truth, and then starts the hard part, which is trying to correspond to that truth, to the truths of science. Okay, we're going to stop over here, and we'll continue with this tomorrow, and then uh, next week, next week, sorry, and um, we'll briefly review a little bit of what we've done in the past, and then start our new topic. Thank you.